peer pressure has set limits to the boundaries of our faith. Would you agree with that? Peer pressure has set limits to the boundaries of our faith. The tyranny of our peers often determines our decisions. And let's face it, other people's opinions exercise a subtle and uh, controlling pressure on the words that we speak and the stand that we take. And a lot of us, more, than, more of us than probably would care to admit, are afraid of what other people might say. Anthony DeMello, in The Way to Love, wrote these words very bluntly. He said, look at your life and see how you have filled its emptiness with people. As a result, they have a stranglehold on you. See how they control your behavior by their approval and disapproval. They hold the power to ease your loneliness with their company, to send your spirit soaring with their praise, to bring you down to the depths with their criticism and rejection. Take a look at yourself spending almost every waking moment of your day placating and pleasing people whether they are living or dead. You live by their norms, conform to their standards, seek their company, desire their love, dread their ridicule, long for their applause, meekly submit to their guilt that they lay upon you. And you are terrified to go against the fashion in the way that you dress or speak or act or even think. And observe how even when you control them, you depend on them and are enslaved by them. People have become so much a part of your being that you cannot imagine living a life that is unaffected or uncontrolled by them. That's a mouthful, isn't it? In the Gospel of John, Jesus asks one of the most defining rhetorical questions ever concerning belief in Christ. Although we may have read this obscure and unfamiliar verse multiple times, it's not likely that many of us have committed it to memory. I doubt that any of us have lingered long enough over it to really ponder what Jesus is exposing. In John chapter 5, and verse 44. Anybody memorize that verse? Probably not. We find him looking straight into the hypocritical eyes of his religious peers and convicting them with these words. Jesus said, How on earth can you believe while you are forever looking for each other's approval and not for the glory that comes from the one God? Whew, I bet you don't remember that verse, do you? That verse arrests me. It penetrates the deepest level of my walk with Christ and challenges my witness to the world around me, as it probably does yours. How much influence do you allow people to have over you when it comes to standing up for your faith? There are those who can answer this question with a, well, not much. I want to read some excerpts from a newspaper article to you the title of which is, You Can't Be a Beacon If Your Light Don't Shine. It was written some time ago, but 56 years ago, last month, Sandy Koufax, anybody recognize that name? Not if you're under 30, (laughs) or 40, or maybe even 50. He was a Jewish pitcher with a sling 
like David's for a left arm and announced that he wouldn't play a child's game on the holiest day of his year, Yom Kippur, Koufax's employer, the Los Angeles Dodgers, respectfully pointed out that this child's game was the first game of the 1965 World Series. Couldn't he pitch just a little? Maybe 27 of his best pitches would do? And then he could stroll over to one of L.A.'s many synagogues after that. No, Koufax said, Don Drysdale threw and the Dodgers lost that first game. They ended up winning the series, but they lost that first game. Well, 26 years ago now, a kid by the name of Eli Herring, recognize that name? Football player, six foot seven inches tall, 340 pound offensive tackle for Brigham Young University, sported a 3.5 grade point average, was judged to be the third best senior offensive tackle in the draft, Eli was a devout Mormon, turned down a multi-million dollar deal with the Raiders because he too wouldn't play on a holy day. Unfortunately, his holy day, Sunday, comes up once a week, and that's when the Raiders buckle on their equipment and go to work. Now, the author here, or the writer, says, Sandy and Eli might disagree as to which day the Lord rested and consequently which day they should honor, but they'd be in solid agreement on the concept of dedication. Dedication. Starting salary, by the way, as a teacher at Mountain View High School was around $22,000 a year. He rejected an offer of $1.5 million to play football. At that salary, $22,000 a year, it would take hearing approximately 20 years teaching in a Utah public school system to earn what the Raiders would have paid him in one season. Sandy Koufax was dedicated to the observance of his Jewish faith. Eli Herring was committed to standing up for his Mormon beliefs. They did not shrink away from declaring them and following them. Question, are we as committed to confessing and following Christ who is the truth? There is much more than a multi-million dollar earthly contract at stake. Jesus said that everyone therefore who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And that is God's word to us today. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Matthew chapter 10. We're going to look at two verses today, verses 32 and 33. And I just read them to you. You see, when Jesus said these words, he was basically saying to his disciples, I want you to stand tall, I want you to speak up, and I want you to stay close to me. That is what will influence the world for Jesus. Our confession of Christ is the cornerstone of our faith. It's that simple. Last time I quoted a well-known writer who once pointed out that there are times we must admit that the strokes or scorn of our peers become more important to us than the approval of Jesus. We have to admit that every day we come face to face with multiple opportunities to confess Jesus Christ to our peers. And at the same time, we're nudged by countless temptations to deny him. 
Every one of us encounters that battle on a daily basis, but from the most mature believer to the spiritual infant, we are confronted with the choice to be a Christian or not to be. That's the question. But the seriousness of Christ's words here in Matthew chapter 10 dictate that we take notice of it. It's not an easy thing to stand for Christ in a world hostile to all that he is. And I know a lot of people are standing up right now for different things. I'm not even going to comment on all of them. But I will comment on this. Make sure if you're a Christian and you're taking a solid stand on something that ultimately your stand is for Jesus and not for anything else. And to do that is super difficult. In fact, the reality of it can be described by the words of Zorba the Greek who spoke to his employer. He said, it's difficult, boss, very difficult. You need a touch of folly to do it. Folly, do you see? You have to risk everything, unquote. In the final analysis, being a disciple of Christ in the real world demands that we risk everything. And that to the unbelieving world around us is nothing short of lunacy. Folly. The outright honesty of Jesus is sometimes hard for us to take. But in these two verses, as in the rest of all the scriptures, we are dealing with absolute truth here. Amen? Absolute truth. And it should affect the way that we live. In these verses, Jesus gives us two clear realities about following him. Just two in these two verses. Principle number one. You're not going to like the choices, by the way. <laughs> Principle number one. Confession of Christ brings confidence. Principle number two. Denial of Christ brings death. That's it. Verses 32 and 33. Confession of Christ brings confidence. First thing, verse 32. Therefore, Jesus said, Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Your willingness, my willingness to confess Christ before people, men and women of the world, determines Christ's willingness to claim you as his follower before his Father. That's heavy duty, isn't it? Let, let's unpack that a little bit and see what Jesus is really saying and what he's getting at. W.B. Riley, a Baptist pastor writing in 1926, points out that it is easy to understand why Jesus had to emphasize this duty to his disciples. There are only 12 men standing almost all by themselves against a religious tradition that was extremely powerful. Jesus had very few friends and many, many enemies. And the proofs of his deity were only partially recognized at that point in time when he spoke these words. The prejudices of Judaism had not even begun to be broken down and the irreligious skepticism of the Gentiles was practically impenetrable at the time. It's no wonder that Jesus' words carry such heavy weight. But how strange it is to find that even today in the 21st century, 21 centuries later, with the church being the largest single institution in the world, by the way, 
Jesus' followers, exceeding any number of people groups, unified together under a single name, under heaven, the infallible evidences of Christ's deity chronicled in the annals of history, the witness of his salvation found in millions of lives in every nation on earth, the translation and distribution of his inerrant word to the masses around the world that we come to a time when the true confession of Christ invites the same conflict. The disciples didn't have that, did they? It's hard to, if it's hard to confess Christ now, with all those things going for us, how hard must it have been then? when Jesus first spoke those words. It's understandable how the first Christians would have been tempted to deny him under circumstances, but how shameful for us who have so much to support our claims. You would think that these words of Jesus were, would almost be irrelevant to us today. And yet they are as relevant to us now as they were when Jesus spoke them. They're completely relevant to us. We find that throughout Christendom today, as the wheat grows up with the tares, there are churches in which his name is maintained, but his deity is denied. Ministries in which his words are professed, but another gospel is preached. Lives in which his lordship is claimed, but his will is not followed. Is it any wonder that it is hard to confess the true Christ before people today? And the same battle rages in this century that raged in the first, and it's this. True Christianity versus false Christianity. And the principles are no less binding. Jesus said, if we confess Christ before men, he will confess us before his Father in heaven. If we deny him, he will also deny us. It seems so black and white, doesn't it? Jesus' words, it's like there's no wiggle room here. So definitive, so final, so terrifying. So what in the world does it mean to confess Christ before men and women? What, what was Jesus referring to exactly here? Well, first of all, it involves external expression. External expression. The word confess simply means in the Bible to admit or to acknowledge, okay? So when we confess our sins, what are we doing? We are admitting and we are acknowledging them openly and frankly before God. We're saying, God, you're right, I'm wrong, right? To confess, we say the same thing about sins that God says. That's what it means to confess. Well, to confess Christ means that we avow frankly and declare openly through word and through deed that Christ is all that he said he was and that God says he is. So here it is. To confess Christ is to align ourselves with the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we do that publicly. We do it publicly. True, it is more than mere verbal confession, but it is also nothing less than verbal confession. For those of you who believe that you can keep your Christianity a secret and get away with it, Jesus' words here are pretty straightforward. You can't. 
Another, on another occasion, Jesus said it like this in Mark chapter 8 and verse 38. He said, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Paul reiterated it in very plain language. He said in Romans chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, can we honestly say that we are never ashamed of our Christian faith? That we're not ashamed of it. I hope you could say that. I hope you could say that you're not ashamed. But are there times when you feel like maybe it slips a little? For example, do you ever catch yourself turning down your Christian radio station when your friends come around? Your friends that are not Christians. Are you reticent to continue a spiritual conversation in the store or at the counter if you know that people can hear you? Those are such little things, but nevertheless, they're pretty revealing of our inward thought patterns, right? Dr. Martin Luther King once said these words. He said, quote, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands at the moment of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. If anything has come out over the last couple of years, it's been challenge and controversy, hasn't it? But has it been challenging controversy about Jesus Christ and his lordship? Or has it been other things? It's a big question. Let's get right down to brass tacks, shall we? Let me ask a few rhetorical questions. Don't raise your hand. What do you say when your boyfriend wants to sleep with you? Do you tell him you promised Christ your purity until marriage? Where do you stand when when your elementary school son, if they go to school, they're not homeschooled, is being taught that creationism is a myth, that religion is voodoo type stuff, it's just a rabbit's foot thing, that sexual identity ought to be determined by how you feel rather than how you were created? Where do you stand when your teen teenage son or daughter is forced to attend an assembly and maybe those that are homeschooled aren't forced into this, but where safe sex is taught as an alternative to abstinence. I mean, it seems so old school now, right? You're listening to me say these words and you're thinking to yourself, well, that was so 80s. No, it's not. It's so biblical. How do you stand when your child's comparative religion class determines that all religions lead to the same truth? I mean, what do you say when your best friend is reaching out for help and seeking for truth and you remain silent about Jesus? What, how do you respond when someone who's hurt you deeply seeks forgiveness and grace? That's a whole different perspective on, on 
confessing Christ, right? Do you confess Christ in all of those situations? Are you aligned with Christ in all of those situations and many, many, many more? Jesus said that the measure of a Christian is that he or she confesses identification with Christ, whether in comfort or controversy, convenience or inconvenience, when it's popular or unpopular, at all times and in every way we are to confess Christ. He didn't put any limitations on it here in these two verses, did he? You see, the church is built on this historical foundation of believers who were unashamed of the gospel of Christ. But to confess Christ requires more than just external expression. Just saying the word saves no one. And that brings up the second part of confessing Christ, and that is it involves internal conversion. External expression, internal conversion. True Christianity says you can't have one without the other. Okay? Both are involved in the confession of true confession of Christ before men. An internal conviction about Christ will always find some type of external expression. Okay? Always. Jesus said that we must confess him, and he said, before men. What was he getting at? But an external profession without internal conversion is absolutely useless, isn't it? You can say the words. So, does that mean if you plaster your car with Jesus bumper stickers and a little silver fish that you're confessing Christ to the world? Confessing Jesus is infinitely more than wearing a cross around your neck. It's about carrying his cross in your heart, which becomes a visible sign in your life. Matthew chapter 7, some of the most disturbing verses of Scripture to me ever. Verse 21, not everyone, Jesus said, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, that's a scary set of verses, isn't it? Not only did they have verbal expression on the outside, but they also what seemingly had signs that would confirm internal conversion. But Jesus said, I never knew you. There's something different about when you truly know Christ and you're not just performing. Paul understood the interconnection of these two concepts in Matthew, I mean, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, uh, some of the most familiar and well-loved verses in the Scripture in the New Testament written by Paul. Uh, Paul under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 10, verse 8, beginning in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. Notice that. If you believe in your heart, if there's true conversion, it will result in a life change. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Verse 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Now the grammar of Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 is intriguing to me. Unfortunately, the English translations don't show it because of the awkwardness of the language. But there is a subtle truth here 
that is extremely important. I want you to take note of this. If you write in your Bibles, you might want to write this in your margin. Literally, verse 32 reads in the original language like this. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess in me before men, I will also confess in him before the Father. You see that subtle change? The idea is that we are to confess Christ out of oneness with him. That's why Matthew chapter 7, for all intents and purposes, those people looked like they were really true Christians, but Jesus says, I never knew you. Because they weren't confessing in him. We confess Christ out of oneness with Christ. Abide in me and confess me, Jesus says. It implies the identification of the confessor with the confessed. It is more than mere verbal acknowledgement. And the next phrase is even more substantial, indicating that Christ confesses us before his Father in the same state of oneness with us. That should really get you excited. Imagine Jesus standing before the Father, confessing that we are one of His. Right? He confesses in us before the Father in heaven. In other words, Jesus affirms solidarity with us. Doesn't that give you great joy to know that that happens? It brings a whole new understanding to Jesus' words. In John chapter 17, for example, John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, verse 20, we've heard these words preached and talked about and you've read them so many times. Then I think about it in the way that I just said that Jesus confesses before the Father in us. In other words, in solidarity with us. John 17, 20 begins this way. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for all those who believe in me through their word, that they may be, what's the word? One. Even as you, Father, are what? In me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. That the world may know. That's the whole thrust there, right? Our solidarity with Christ, his with us. Our confession of that, his confession of that before the Father, what does that do? What does it accomplish that the world may know? 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. It's another place. And now, little children, John writes, abide in him, dwell in him, be one with him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. I love the words of Psalm 71.1. If you remember any of the scriptures that I've just read to you, remember this one. Psalm 71.1, pray this, sing it, worship to it, and just make it saturate your life and your heart 
In thee, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. That's a great mantra to have as your life to recite during the day. To confess Christ not only means to recognize that he's Lord, but it is to identify ourselves with him and not back away from proclaiming him as such. Every one of us falls short of that, okay? Every one of us falls short of that. I know I do. We have lapses of faith, don't we? We have them when we keep quiet or when we act ashamed of him subtly. Yet know this, some of the greatest and most productive followers of Christ have also experienced that fear. We read in the scriptures that the disciples all fell away, right? They all fell away. Peter flat out denied him. Timothy got timid and weak-kneed, and so do we. We've all experienced times of subtly denying Christ. Times like those test us, don't they? They prove us. They purify us. And when it's all said and done, they strengthen us. Amen? But they should not be the norm for us. They shouldn't be the norm for us. Using his own circumstances in an effort to bolster Timothy's courage, Paul wrote these words in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Look at verse 12. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed, Paul says, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Paul had his total trust in God because he believed in him and he had entrusted himself entirely to his Lord. A true confession of Christ involves this external expression and internal conversion, yet more than that, it brings about eternal confirmation. Again, verse 32, Matthew 10, the second part of the verse, I will also, Jesus says, confess in him before my Father who is in heaven. And that should give us confidence. Those whose lives are characterized by the confession of Christ are the ones whom Jesus will claim as his own. Amen? What an incredible sound that will be when we stand before the Lord and we hear Jesus say these words, Dad, he's mine. She's mine. They confessed me before the world and I'm confirming them here and now. As wonderful as that sounds, the flip side is pretty sobering. It's pretty sobering. Confession of Christ brings confidence, but... Verse 33 says, Jesus says that denial of Christ brings death. But whoever denies me before men, Jesus says, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. It's kind of heart-stopping words, aren't they? But what do they really mean? Do they mean that if we ever once deny Jesus that we're doomed to, to an eternality and, and punishment in hell? What about Peter? Didn't he deny Christ? He denied him three times. Even after he was warned he was going to do so. By Christ. 
What about the early Christian believers who denied and renounced Christ in order to save their own necks and then later repented and confessed him? Will Christ disown them for eternity? What about us when we go out into the world disguising our Christianity in order to, to avoid conflict with, with family or friends or our peers? Will he forget that he ever knew us? These are all questions that roll through our minds when we read this verse, verse 33. Well, first of all, we must realize that it would be completely right that he should deny us before his Father in heaven, right? If we're unwilling to admit our attachment to Jesus, why should we expect him to maintain his connection to us? But I'm convinced, however, that in these verses, Jesus is not speaking about temporary lapses of faith. I mean, 1 John, for example, chapter 2, talks about if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father who steps in for us, right? So, as I said before, not one of us meets God's standard of perfection. And by His grace, we are forgiven when we repent of our failures. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from every unrighteousness. But I believe that we can apply these same truths to Jesus' words here. But if we are truly His disciples, He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Amen? Amen. But that should never minimize this warning. Never. If we persist in denying him, it is evidence that we may not be true disciples of Christ. Every one of us should be concerned about that. I was just reading an article, watching interviews about a guy that, he was a, he was a Baptist preacher for years. He began preaching, he got saved at a young, as a young boy at a, at a at a Bible camp. He began preaching powerfully at 16 years old. He became a pastor of a church and he, was one, he became a pastor that was recognized nationally, I think it's one of the 500 fastest growing churches in the United States. You know what the guy's doing now? He's writing books and he's going around speaking in circuits to tell people why he has completely left the faith, completely denied Jesus, completely deny the existence of God. I don't understand how somebody can do that after a lifelong ministry, 30 plus years. It'd be like me walking out of here in January, at the end of January, and then struggling for the next six months and then telling everybody, all of you, that I have now renounced my faith and I no longer believe that Jesus was real. Pray for me. I don't ever want that to happen. <laughs> I can't imagine it happening, but I can't imagine it happening to this guy. That's scary stuff. But I know one thing. If we're truly his disciples, Jesus will never leave us, never forsake us. I've got to believe that that guy, if he was truly believed, truly believed that before he dies, he will come back. Because Christ will never let him go. But that should never minimize again the warning. You know, every one of us should be concerned about this warning because it's, it's, it's a good thing to keep us in check. Evaluate yourself. Are you denying Christ? More rhetorical questions. Are you denying Christ before your family? Are you denying Christ in your community? Are you denying Christ with your friends? 
How about even in your own home? See, Peter was thoroughly convinced that he would never deny Christ, even if it meant death. He actually said those words and recorded for eternity in the scriptures. But Jesus warned him that even his great faith was not beyond the realm of erosion. In Matthew 26, 31 to 35, Jesus told Peter that he would not just deny him. He told Peter, he used a word that means completely deny him. Totally disassociate himself with Christ before people. He used an intense word for deny. In Luke chapter 22, we read about it in verse 31. Simon, Simon, Jesus said. Notice he didn't call him Peter. Notice he called him by his old pre-salvation, <laughs> right? Pre-disciple name. And he didn't just say it once. He repeated it twice for emphasis. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and that you, once you have turned again, repented, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. Brothers, and Peter said to him, Lord, with you I'm ready to both go to prison and to death. And he said to the to Peter, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you even know me. See, Peter claimed that he would follow Christ to prison and to death, and the end result was that Peter fell very, very hard. And when it got rough, he denied having any connection with Jesus whatsoever. He swore that he never even knew him. In Luke chapter 22, if you're there, verse 60. Follow with me as I read a few verses here. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. This is the third denial. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Look at verse 61. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. That would be the most convicting stare in the history of the world. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. You want to know something that was, that's interesting in this scripture? Interestingly enough, on that night, it was a look, not a lecture, that brought Peter to repentance. Just a look. My friends, we don't know what might cause us to deny Christ. So heed Jesus' warning here. Take it seriously. Keep alert. And don't be surprised if your Christian children that you have brought up to know and love Christ suddenly begin to distance themselves from him when they get into middle school or high school or college. They're up against a whole different world than we were at their age. And that's why it is absolutely incumbent upon us as parents and as a church and as grandparents to encourage them daily daily to stand up for Jesus. Stand for Christ. Pray unceasingly for them. They have pressures to face that you and I never even knew existed when we were their age. Day in and day out, they're immersed in this environment that denies the existence of absolute truth. 
denies the existence of God, of Jesus. It's all a bunch of myths. They are being inculcated with self-exalting, self-gratifying, God-denying worldviews. And the call to self-sacrifice, which is the hallmark of Christian discipleship, is completely and utterly foreign to their environment. Completely. In the book, A Whack on the Side of the Head. Nice title, huh? Sometimes we need it, don't we? I think verses like this give it to us. The author writes, several centuries ago, a curious but deadly plague appeared in a small village in Lithuania. What was curious about this disease was its grip on its victim. As soon as a person contracted it, he would go into a very deep, almost death-like coma. And most individuals would die within 24 hours of contracting this disease, but occasionally a hardy soul would make it back to the full bloom of health. But the problem was that since early, the early 18th century, medical technology was not very advanced back then, right? So the unaffiliated had quite a difficult time telling whether a victim was dead or alive. Now, this didn't matter too much, though, because most of the people were, in fact, dead. Notice I said most. Then one day it was discovered that someone had been buried alive. This alarmed the town people, so they called a town meeting to decide what should be done to prevent such a situation from ever happening again. And after much discussion, most people agreed on the following solution. They decided to put food and water in every casket next to the body, and they would even put an air hole up from the casket to the earth's surface. And these procedures would be expensive, but they would be more than worthwhile if they would save some people's lives, right? Another group came up with a second, less expensive answer. They proposed implanting a 12-inch long stake in every coffin lid directly over where the victim's heart would be. Then whatever doubts were there about whether the person was dead or alive would be eliminated as soon as the coffin lid was closed. Now, that may sound completely gruesome to you. But don't you realize that this is what's happening all around us on a daily basis to our kids? It's exactly what's happening. They're getting buried alive. Not only by the pressure of their peers, but as society as a whole. And if we're not providing them with the spiritual air holes and nourishment that they need, if we're not teaching them by our own words, by our own example, how to withstand the temptation of denying Christ, then we are virtually putting a 12-inch stake on the lid of the coffin and we're slamming it shut right on them. That's a tough word. But that's a real word. That's the reality of the situation, isn't it? You see, we can't be like Peter and assume that we, nor our children, nor our grandchildren will never deny Christ. They might. Then it follows that we, like Jesus, must commit ourselves to pray for them, to train them, that their faith may not fail. And once they have turned, they may strengthen others. Just like Jesus prayed for Peter. Jesus knew that Peter would be attacked by the evil one. And you know we will too. And you know our children will too. 
He will try to make us ashamed that we know Jesus. He will make us ashamed to speak the truth before others. And he will attempt to get us to deny Christ in a hundred other ways as well. So the question looms again, have you denied him? Have I denied him? You know, we can deny Jesus in so many more ways than just our words, right? Ken Ken Geyer puts it this way very aptly in his book, Intimate Moments with the Savior. He writes very candidly, I deny you in so many areas of my life in so many ways and at so many different times. When I'm too busy to pray, I deny that you are the center of my life. He says, when I neglect your word, I deny that you are competent to guide me. When I worry, I deny that you are Lord of all circumstances. When I steal something from another person to enrich or enhance my own life, whether that be some material thing or some credit that is rightly due another, which I have claimed for myself, I deny that you are the source of all blessings. You see, all these little subtle ways can erode our faith if we're not careful to keep short accounts. Satan will try to get us to deny him in these and a thousand other ways. He will shake us to the core. He'll sift us like wheat, all in an attempt to silence our witness and to make us ashamed. Moshe Rosen, formerly of Jews for Jesus when he was alive, once wrote these words. He wrote, quote, Satan uses shame like a pry bar He thrusts it into our souls and opens us up, making us vulnerable, shrinking away from the shame. We move in the direction he exactly wants us to go, away from God. That's what Peter could have done. That's exactly what Judas did. Both of these men denied Christ, but after the winnowing, only one of them had retained a naked kernel of faith that stemmed from a genuine confession of Christ. And it was a mere kernel, by the way, of faith, which caused him to return to his Lord, to experience his Lord's forgiveness and restoration, and go on to confess Jesus powerfully before thousands as one who would never, ever deny him again. Even when facing his own death. In fact, Peter was so loyal to Jesus that he requested to be crucified upside down, stating that he was unworthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. What a powerful turnaround, right? And why did that happen? Because Christ prayed for Peter. Because Peter was truly connected to Christ. Peter's denial didn't lead to disownment. And yours doesn't have to either if you deny him. No one has to be disowned by Christ. Even though at times you and I may fail, the Bible says that Jesus is able to save us forever, right? Forever. And that he always lives to make intercession for us. That's Hebrews 7.25, by the way. And I suggest that you maybe want to write that down and post it somewhere. That Jesus saves us forever and he always lives to pray for us. A friend, if you persist in denying Christ with your mouth and in your heart, continually rejecting his offers of grace, rejecting out of hand his gift of forgiveness and life, please be aware that on the day that you stand before God, if you haven't connected your life to Christ yet by faith, please be aware on the day that you stand before God that Jesus 
will deny you because he never knew you. Because the truth is, he never did. Let me close with this. William Booth. Recognize that name? William Booth? He was the founder of the Salvation Army. He was asked in an interview one time toward the end of his life to describe the secret of his success. This is what he replied. He says, I will tell you the secret. God has had all there was of me. There have been men with greater opportunities, but from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and a vision of what Jesus Christ could do with the poor of London, I made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth there was. And if there is anything of power in the Salvation Army today, it is because God has all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. Those are great words. Could we say them? The interviewer commented that I learned from William Booth that the greatness of a man's power is the measure of his surrender. It's not a question of who you are or what you are, but of whether God controls you. Several years later, when General Booth's daughter heard about her father's comment regarding his full surrender to God. This was after he had passed away. This is what she said. Never know what your kids are going to say, right? This is what she said. She said, quote, that wasn't really his secret. His secret was that he never took it back. What a powerful testimony. So where do you stand in your relationship to Christ? If your heart has been moved by Jesus' words, I want you to bow your head and close your eyes right now and join me in this prayer as we close. This prayer, which I borrowed from, again, Ken Geyer in his book, Intimate Moments with the Savior, because I think it's so appropriate. Forgive me, Jesus, for all those quiet ways known only to you in which I have denied you. Thank you for all the times you have prayed for me that my faith may not fail. There is no telling how many times I have been rescued from Satan's hand because you stood beside me. And thank you, most faithful of friends, that no matter how terribly I've failed you, I can always look into your eyes and there find forgiveness. We pray these things in Jesus' name.